Let's do this. Let's a formal, a formal welcome to Torah Studies. It is great to see everybody. It is wonderful to have you here. Thank you for joining on this Wednesday, May 26th, for a look at the Torah portion of Behalotcha. Before we get started, before we jump in, and wow, what a great class tonight. I want to mention that this class has been sponsored by Ray Bellman in honor of the anniversary of her wedding and her marriage with her beloved, dear, late husband, Morris. Um, Ray, jump in and tell me how many years um, uh, ago, how, what, what number anniversary is this? 50. 50? How did I forget? <laughs> you told me that. <laughs> anyway, that's, um, that's a beautiful number. And uh, 50, 50 years since their wedding. So indeed, Ray, you should, and, and the anniversary is tomorrow. So you should be blessed with, uh, with everything you need, with gesund and nachas and, and, and everything that you need physically and spiritually. Of course, gesund means health and nachas means joy from the mishpacha, from the family. And everybody should be well and healthy and, uh, and please God soon with Mashiach. We'll be reunited and, uh, with our loved ones, and I know certainly that that, uh, that would be a very special thing. All right, so please God, the Torah study is in, is, is in honor of this, uh, this beautiful anniversary, 50 years. All right, let's jump in. Yeah. Can I get another Miss I'm going for an angioplasty on Friday for one of uh, my four uh, uh, heart... Um, uh, I guess I left ascending something, um, so it's, they're going to do the angioplasty and maybe some stents, and it's it's a good thing because uh, you know it's uh, it's caught in time before any. Um, yeah. So Yaakov, tell us tell us your Hebrew name, and we'll do a sp- we'll 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 make sure that, to have you in mind. So it's not Yankala, It's actually Yaakov Noah. Okay. Ben Shlomo Hashofet saw the judge. <laughs> Got it. Yaakov Noah. Yaakov Noah and, and your mother's name? Ben Yochevet. Ben Yochevet. All right. You should have good health. Then everything should go well on Friday. We want to hear back in, from you in good health very soon. All right. Let's jump in because we have a lot of Torah to cover. And this is, this is um, our opportunity to really delve into the Torah portion. They tell a story about a fellow who had an issue remembering his name. He was going through an identity crisis and he was wondering who he was. So his wife tells him, listen, his wife tells him and his name was Yankel. So his wife says, look, here's what you're going to do. You're going to take a red string and tie it around your big toe. Okay. And then whenever you have this identity crisis, who am I? What am I? You look down at your toe. Take off your socks if you need to. Look down at your toe. You see the string. You're like, oh, I'm Yankel. I know who I am. Good. Crisis averted. And so it was, and it worked, and his wife's advice was fantastic. But one day he goes to the mikvah. You know what the mikvah is? The mikvah is the ritual bath. And he's there. He's in the shower, and it's a whole thing, and without getting into too much detail. So the soap, right, and the water conspire to free the little um, string from his toe. And it heads downstream in the water and it ties around someone else's toe. 
in the mikvah, in the ritual bathhouse. And at some point, he begins to develop his existential identity crisis. And he's like, who am I? What am I? And he looks down and he doesn't see the string. And now he's panicked. He's looking around. He sees it on someone else's toe. So he runs over to the fellow and says, I know who you are. But can you tell me who am I? All right. That's the joke. I don't know if it deserves a chuckle or not, but that's, that's the joke. In life, in life, we can struggle with a crisis of identity. Who am I? What am I? Why am I here? Who am I here for? What is my purpose in life? These are questions that at some point all of us ask. All of us, I mean, I, I can't say for sure, but I'm going to do it anyway. All of us, at some point in our lives have struggled with finding our place in a certain space, in a certain environment, whether it was in school or whether it was in, in, in other social contexts or maybe in our families. We struggle to find ourselves, to know who we are and know how we fit in. This is not unique to any one of us. This is almost inherent to the human condition, a struggle to to, to understand oneself, to find one's identity, and also to figure out how one fits into this larger space that we call community. So tonight, we're going to learn incredible Torah lessons about identity and about community and about fitting in. We're going to learn powerful lessons from a most unlikely of sources from the Paschal Lamb. All right, so let me give you a little bit of context. In this week's Torah portion, Bahalotcha, amongst many other topics, the Torah tells the story of what happened one year after the Exodus. So let's paint the picture. Before we continue, I, want, I, I need to mention a welcome to Linda. It's great to see you. And Paul, it's great to see you. I don't think I mentioned. And Mark, great to see you. Welcome. To make sure, and Alex, welcome. Want to make sure to welcome everybody personally because, uh, oh, and Adina Malka, welcome. Good to see you. I'm sorry, you know how the boxes on Zoom move around? It's whatever. Anyway, great to see you. Thank you all for being here. Let's continue. So the Torah tells a story about what happened one year later. I mean, the first time, you know, the first Passover was great. We got out of Egypt. But what happens one year later? So the Torah tells us the following. I'm going to share my screen with you. And we are going to read this together. Ray, if you don't mind, please get us started. I'm pulling this up right here. Uh, text 1A. Chapter 9 of the book of Numbers. Don't forget to unmute, please. You got it. Uh, God spoke to Moses in the Sinai Desert in the second year of their exodus from the land of Egypt in the first month, saying, The children of Israel shall make the Passover sacrifice in its appointed time. On the afternoon of the 14th of this month, you shall make in its appointed time, in accordance with all its status and all its ordinances, you shall make it. Moses spoke to the children of Israel, instructing them to make the Passover sacrifice. 
So they made the Passover sacrifice in the first month on the afternoon of the 14th day of the month in the Sinai Desert, according to all that God had commanded Moses. So did the children of Israel do. Thank you. So this is from our Torah portion, Balotcha, chapter 9 of the book of Numbers, the first five verses of chapter 9. And the Torah tells us that God tells Moses one year later, if you're counting, it's the year 2449 from creation, God tells Moses the first day, uh, oh, it doesn't say which day he said. Okay, in the first month. So it's the month of Nisan. The year 2449, approaching the first anniversary, and God says, no, in, in anticipation of the anniversary, make sure that you tell the people to bring their Paschal lamb offering on the 14th of the month. So you bring it on the 14th, you eat it on the night of the 15th, we call that a Seder. Of course, we don't have a Paschal lamb because we don't have a temple, but they were told, they had a Mishkan, then they had a tabernacle, portable temple, and so that's their, that was their instruction. Okay, Rashi points out something interesting. If you notice, the verse says, and I'm going to highlight it here, on the afternoon of the 14th of this, of this month, God says to Moses, you shall make it in its appointed time. Wh what, what is that adding? You shall make it in its appointed time. What's the appointed time? Oh, the 14th of the month, but you just said that. When is the Paschal Lamb done? The 14th, in the afternoon of the 14th of Nisan. And then it says, oh, on that day, you shall make it in its appointed time. What's, what's, what is that adding? All right. We, you don't have to answer. I don't need to answer because we have Rashi that's going to answer for us. All right. Rashi is going to do this. David Lazan, jump in, please. Text 1B, Rashi. Take a look at what Rashi says. Don't forget to unmute. You shall make it in its appointed time, even if it were to fall on the Sabbath. Our sages tell us that, listen to this, that second Passover, I guess the first year later, but it wasn't, right? That next year, the eve of Passover, let's get, let's get the cheshman straight, let's get the calculation straight, the eve of Passover fell out on Shabbat. Here's the deal. Passover begins on the 15th day of the month. That year it was Sunday. The night of the 15th was Saturday night. So your Seder was going to be Saturday night. So when would you bring the Paschal Lamb? The afternoon of the 14th, which was on Shabbat. Spoiler alert. This year we had the same setup. Seder was Saturday night. Shabbos was Erev Pesach. It created all sorts of wild scenarios wherein we flushed challah down the toilet. Don't ask. It was wild, right? You can't burn it, so you got to flush it. A whole situation. But that first anniversary of Passover, in other words, one year later, that's the way it fell out. It was Saturday night, so the eve was Saturday and so God says, bring it in its appointed time on the 14th. And Rashi says, that means even if it falls out on Shabbat, you don't push it off. You don't do it earlier. You do it on the Sabbath. However, we know this because hindsight is 2020. But I want to share with you tonight that this was the subject of a fierce debate 
a fierce rabbinic debate whether or not if the eve of Passover falls out on Shabbat, whether or not you bring the Paschal lamb. Why was it the subject of a debate? Why don't we remember what, ha- what, 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 what God told Moses? Why didn't they read Rashi? Okay, Rashi came much later. So wh- how, why didn't they know? The answer is because, as you might have realized with this year, Passover, falling out on a Saturday night, is extremely rare. Passover, I'll say it again, Passover beginning Saturday night, which means that Shabbat is the eve of Passover, is an extremely rare setup with a calendar. Back in the day, it was as rare, if not rarer. In the times of the Second Temple, remember this is before the oral tradition was written down, everything was committed to memory. All the details of the laws, all the, the different scenarios, all the unique boutique scenarios, all needed to be remembered. And it hadn't happened for years that the eve of Passover was on Shabbat. And one year, it happened. And it came up. And everyone asked the question, when do we bring the Paschal lamb? Right? Our Seder Saturday night. Are we offering it on Shabbat? Are we bringing, slaughtering, burning an animal on Shabbat and roasting an animal? What are we doing with the Passover sacrifice? Are we bringing it Friday? And then eating it Saturday night? What's the plan? The, 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 um, it's actually from a Tosefta. The Tosefta, which is an original source, like from the times of the Mishnah, the Tosefta tells us that this was the subject of a fierce debate. There were people, the great rabbis, a group of rabbis who were the leaders of the, 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 uh, the Beit Medrash, the study academy. They were the leaders of they were the leading scholars. They were known as B'nai B'Seira. And the B'nai B'Seira said, you don't bring the Paschal Lamb offering on Shabbat. Hillel said, Hillel. You know Hillel, right? He's on campus everywhere. No, Hillel, of course, is the great Hillel the Elder, who was one of the greatest Jewish sages of all time. Hillel, right? Hillel disagreed with the B'nai B'Seira, the children of B'Seira, the, the leading scholars of the time. Hillel this up-and-coming scholar said, no, no, you do bring it on Shabbat. You do offer the Paschal Lamb. When it, when it falls out that Erev Pesach, the eve of Passover, is Shabbat, you bring the Paschal Lamb. Let me, let me just jump in for a quick second. Hillel lived in the times of the Second Temple. He wasn't post-Temple. He was during the time of the Second Temple. He actually lived in the first century before the Common Era. So he lived... Um, over 2,000 years ago. He lived during the times of the Second Temple. He lived for 120 years. Hillel disagreed with the B'nai B'Seira, who were the incumbent scholars, the heads of the, 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 the leading scholars at the time. He disagreed. He said, no, you do bring it. And he brought proofs, and he convinced everybody that he was correct. And because of this, they actually, listen to this, they ousted the old guard and they appointed him the, 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 um, the leader of the people, the leading scholar of the people. That's when Hillel became Hillel. Hillel even has a sandwich named after him, also Passover related. Hillel became Hillel because of the Paschal Lamb on Shabbat dilemma. But don't take my word for it. 
Let's look at the sources. I'm going to share my screen with you. Let's do this together. Okay. Um, let's ask Dr. Maxi. Please read text number two. Tosefta Pesachim. Take it away, please. One year, the 14th of Nisan, fell on Shabbat. They asked Hillel the elder, does the Passover sacrifice override the Shabbat? He said, is there only one Passover in the year that overrides the Shabbat? There are, in fact, more than 300 Passovers in the year that override the Shabbat. Everyone in the temple gathered around him in protest. He said, the daily Tamid sacrifice is a communal offering and it overrides the Shabbat. Likewise, the Passover sacrifice is a communal offering and it overrides the Shabbat. Moreover, I was taught by my teachers explicitly that the Passover sacrifice overrides the Shabbat. That very day, they appointed Hillel as the Nasi, and he taught the laws of the Passover sacrifice. Thank you. Listen to this story. He knew how to get folks' attention. They asked him. He was a scholar. He was an up-and-coming star scholar. I'm going to tell you more about his background in a few minutes. Some of you may know the famous story, which I'll tell, but it's an unbelievable story with Hillel. Here's the point. He was an up-and-coming scholar. He was not the Nasi. He was not the leader, the spiritual leader. But they asked him for his opinion. Do you bring it? Erev Pesach, the 14th of Nisan, is falling out on Shabbat. What do we do with that? What, what do we do with the sacrifice? Do we do it or not do it? Does it override Shabbat and we do it or, we, or, or not? So look what his answer is. <laughs> what do you mean? There are 300 Passovers that override, every year that override Shabbat. And, 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 and you understand what's going on here. 300 Passovers in a year that override Shabbat? What are you even saying? What are 300 Passovers? I, I mean, get the guy a calendar, right? What is 300 Passovers? What 300 Passovers that are overriding Shabbat? What? So everyone is like, this guy is out of his mind. And then he says, no, 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 let me explain. The Talmud sacrifice is a communal offering over, over at Shabbat. The same thing is true with Passover. And you're probably wondering, what, what is the Talmud offering and how does that answer the question? And how are there still 300 Passovers? So let me explain. Here's what it says in Jewish law. A pro, there are two types, two categories of offerings, of sacrifices in the temple. There are personal offerings and communal offerings. Let me give examples of both. A personal offering would be if somebody wanted to give a gift to God. If somebody wanted to thank Hashem for some sort of salvation, like um, recovering from a sickness or crossing an ocean or a desert or getting out of prison. Somebody wanted to offer Thanksgiving, that would be another option for personal sacrifice. A sin atonement. Somebody did something wrong and they want to atone for it. That's another example of a personal offering. So a personal offering is defined as when a person is bringing their own offering to God in the temple. Makes sense. What's a communal offering? A communal offering is an offering that's brought on behalf of the entire nation. Right? What are some examples? The Talmud. The Talmud was a daily offering brought one lamb in the morning, one lamb in the afternoon, every day of the year, day in, day out. Keves echa ta'aseh ba'boker, keves hasheni ta'aseh be'en ha'arbayim. 
one, one lamb in the morning and one lamb in the afternoon, every single day. Who brought it and who was it for? It was brought by the priests in the temple. And who was it for? Everybody. Who paid for it? Who paid for it? Every year. Actually, before Passover, they would raise a half a shekel from everybody. They would, raise, they would do a communal um, campaign. They would get the money in, and that money went to purchasing and, and procuring the offerings on behalf of the entire people every single day. The Talmud offering was brought every day without exception. It was brought on Sunday, on Monday, two times a day, went I forgot what we're up to. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Shabbat. But how do you slaughter an animal? How do you offer an animal on Shabbat? A communal offering is docheh, pushes away, overrides Shabbat. Are you with me on this? A communal offering is done on Shabbat. What about a personal offering? You want to bring a Thanksgiving offering. You want to bring a sin offering. You want to bring a gift to God. Are you allowed to do it on Shabbat? What do you think? No. So again, I want to be very clear, take you step by step through this. There are two types of offerings, a personal offering and a communal offering. One of the differences between these two is vis-a-vis bringing them on Shabbat. A personal offering cannot be brought on Shabbat. A communal offering is brought on Shabbat. In fact, on Shabbat, there was an additional communal offering brought. You know what it was called? The Musaf. You know what we do? We have an extra prayer on Shabbat in commemoration of that extra one. Everyone say hi to Reeves. Hey, all right. Got a Reeves, we know we're in good hands. All right, you're jumping on? All right. Guys, Reva graduated today. Not graduated today. Graduated yesterday? Yeah. All right, but finished today. Right? Yes? You're done with school? Um, did you see? You want to ask them if they saw? Oh, the the butterflies. I saw the butterflies. Okay, but hold hold off on the butterflies because we're doing communal offerings right now. In fact, as I was saying, there is an additional communal offering that is brought on Shabbat and festivals. We know this. I added festivals now the second time around. don't, Don't think I didn't know that I left that out before. On Shabbat and festivals, you bring an extra offering that's known as the Musaf. And that's why in our prayer books, we don't have a temple, so we pray. Instead, we have different prayers. We actually pray a prayer called the Musa prayer, which is in commemoration of that special additional offering, which means that there were offerings brought in the temple on Shabbat and holidays, but not personal ones, communal ones. Does that make sense? Everyone's on the same page here, yes? Carbon yachid, carbon sibar, right? Individual offerings, personal offerings, and communal offerings Personal, not on Shabbat, communal on Shabbat. So let's tell the story again. So they go to Hillel, and they say to Hillel, what you doing? I'm eating a sandwich. We have a question for you. That was a joke. We have a question for you, Hillel. They ask Hillel, okay, what's with the Passover? What do we do this year? Erev Pesach, the eve of Passover, is falling out on Shabbat. We got a Paschal lamb to offer. What do we do? And he says, what do you do? You're doing this every day of the year. Every Shabbat, every festival, you're doing this. In other words, what's he saying? He's saying that the Passover lamb is 
I'm, I'm asking you, is his answer that it's a personal or a communal offering? Communal. A carbon tzibur. That's his answer. It's a communal offering. And that's why he says in his answer, is there only one Passover in the year that overrides Shabbat? There are more than 300 that would. In other words, every day there's a communal offering. And that communal offering, the Tumid, overrides Shabbat. That's why it's more than 300, because there's about 350 or 60. Don't worry, I know 365 days in a year, but that's a solar year. But in the Jewish calendar, 354, give or take if there's a leap year or not. All right, whatever. Anyway, here's the point. There's a carbon tamid, a tamid offering that's brought every single day of the year, override Shabbat, because it's a communal offering. And his point is the same thing is true with this Passover lamb. It is a communal offering. And thus, you do it. And he said, not only that, but I have a tradition for my teachers. Right? I was taught explicitly that that's what happened. So we haven't done it in years. But number one, I remember that's, that's, what, that's the tradition. And number two, it's a communal offering. So of course you do it on Shabbat. They were so impressed with his answer. They were so impressed that they appointed him the leader. They threw out the other guys that disagreed. They threw out the other guys. The B'nai said, you don't. And they, they said, you guys are out. Hillel is in. We have a lot to unpack in this story, but I want to point out a little bit of a biography about, about um, about Hillel. Why do you have time for a question? Steve, hold on one second. No, let me just jump into, actually, yeah, Steve, go ahead. Sorry, yeah, go ahead. Okay, uh, we know that uh, davening is a substitute for the sacrifices. Right. Given that there's no temple. So does that mean that uh, every prayer we say on Shabbos is a communal prayer and not a personal prayer? That's a very good question. Prayers. Certainly, certainly many, or if not most of the morning prayers are personal. Yeah. Communal. Good question. Good question. So the question, if this, this concept applies to the prayers... Let's hold off on that question, and hopefully by the end of the class, we'll have a little bit of clarity into the interplay between the personal and the communal. It's an excellent question, but, but hold, hold that thought, and let's see if we get some clarity. But let me tell the story about Hillel, because Hillel was very remarkable. Hillel grew up not in Israel. Hillel grew up in Bavel, in Babylonia. He grew up in the times of... Of, uh, oh, sorry, he grew up out of, out of Israel, and he came to Israel to study in the best Torah academies that there were at the time. He was so poor, he came penniless, he came on his own, because he was obsessed with Torah study. That's all he wanted for himself. He didn't have any support, no, no framework, no other support. He came himself, and this is what he did. He would chop wood, and he would earn enough money to be able to pay the entrance, exam, the entrance fee every day in the academy. Back in the day, in, his in Hill's times, in that academy, they took money. If you wanted to come in for the day, if you wanted to join the academy and study Torah that day, you had to pay an entrance fee every single day. Hillel had no money. So what he did was he worked, he chopped wood until he earned, and he sold it and he, until he earned enough money to pay the fee, and he paid the fee. The Talmud tells a story that one time, it was cold, it was the winter, and he couldn't chop any wood. He didn't have any money. He couldn't pay the fee, but he needed to study Torah. 
So he climbed up to the roof. Raise your hand if you've heard the story. Yeah, I see some of you raising your hand. He climbed up to the roof of the academy. It was a skylight. You could see in and there was a, the, the ability to hear. And he was there and he studied. It was so cold, it was so snowy that he almost froze to death. In fact, at some point, the sages noticed that the skylight was being blocked by something. And they said, what's going on? They climbed up to the roof. They saw he was lying there. And he almost, it was very dangerous. He was freezing cold and, and, and it was winter. That was the dedication of Hillel. Hillel came from not a Torah background, not a scholarly background. He was a person that was determined to study Torah. And he rose and he rose and he rose in scholarship until this story happened and they made him Nasi, they made him the spiritual scholar, scholarly leader. Not only that, but the leadership, the Nesiut, the leadership, stayed in his family for nearly 500 years. From his time, nearly 500 years of unbroken Jewish leadership in his family. And what was the catalyst? What was the impetus for his becoming the leader of the people, of the, the scholarly leader of the people? The story about the Paschal Lamb on Shabbat, whether or not you bring it. And he said, yes, because it's a communal offering. So number one, we need to understand that story, that debate. Is it personal? Is it communal? How does he know? What's the implication? But moreover, we also need to understand why that was such an important story, why that was such an important moment that it, it, it catapulted him into the position of leadership for hundreds of, him and his family for hundreds of years. What was it about that story that is connected with leadership? I'm glad you asked. So what we're going to do is we're going to break this down and we're going to go through the Paschal Lamb offering and try to see what are the two sides of the debate. B'nai Becerra, the old guard, they said it was a private offering, a personal offering. Do not bring it on Shabbat. Hillel says, no, it's a communal offering. You do bring it on Shabbat. What is at the core of their debate? I'm going to share my screen with you and we're going to pull up some texts. All right, we're going to begin with text number three from Rambam, Maimonides. Steve, Steve Horowitz, please read text number three from Rambam. Take it away. It is a positive, positive commandment to offer the Paschal sacrifice on the 14th day of the month of Nisan after midday. This offering is brought only from lambs or goats, a male in its first year. Both men and women are obligated in this mitzvah. So let me ask you a question. Based on text three, does it seem like a personal um, uh, offering or a communal offering? Based on text three. This is open to everybody. Personal. Personal, right? It's a mitzvah for everybody to bring a Paschal lamb. Seems like a personal offering to me, right? The Talmud was one, one animal on behalf of the whole community. This is multiple animals, right? Everyone's obligated to bring a Paschal lamb. This seems like a personal offering. However, and that's why, and that's exactly why the B'nai B'Seira said, the B'nai B'Seira who were the old guard, that's exactly why they said 
Yeah? That it's a personal offering. But take a look at text number four. There's a communal element to it as well. Although it had to be brought by everybody, it was brought in a way where people tag team with each other. They grouped together. Text number four. Let's read this. Mark. Mark Galt, please read text number four. Speak to the entire community of Israel, saying, on the 10th of this month, let each one take a lamb for each parental home, a lamb for each household. But if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor who is nearest to his house shall take one according to the number of people. Each one according to one's ability to eat shall you be counted for the lamb. Yeah, so what we see over here is that although it seems like a personal offering, there is a grouping of families together, a household, at least a household, which is already a group. And if the household is too small, you join up with a neighbor with another household. Again, there is a communal element. Let's take it a step further. Text five. I'm going to explain this one. The Mishnah states in Tractate Psachim, the Mishnah states that the, the, all of the Paschal lambs were brought in th- one of three groups. So if your family was joining up with another family, well, you, a representative would bring that lamb into a larger collective group with other people representing others. In other words, these individual offerings, these personal offerings were brought in a collective way. Text number five. Let's read this one and... Let's ask Donna. Donna, please jump in. Text number five. Donna Herbert. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) The Paschal lamb was slaughtered in three groups, as the verse states, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall slaughter it in the afternoon. The first group of people sacrificing the offering entered, and when the temple court yard filled, they closed the doors of the temple courtyard after their sacrifices were finished. The first group exited and the second group entered after their sacrifices were finished. The second group left and the third group entered. So what we see here is that the Paschal Lamb was brought on behalf of, everyone had to be part of one, but so on the, on the one hand it's an individual, it's a personal offering because everyone needs to be involved. But it was done by household or households grouped together. And those households grouped together with larger groups. So there was a communal vibe to it. So it was kind of like a hybrid. It was a a bit of a personal offering, but it was also a bit of a communal spirit. It was a personal offering brought in a communal setting. Hence the question, does it have the status of a personal offering, which cannot be brought on Shabbat? Or does it have the status of a communal offering and it could be brought on Shabbat. Are you with me in the question? Yes? Again, the people, it hadn't, it hadn't happened for years. For years, this did, the calendar didn't fall out like that. But that one year where the Tesefta story happened, that one year it happened that Erev Pesach, the Eve of Passover, fell out on Shabbat. And the question at hand was, what do we do with the Paschal Lamb? What drove the question? Very simple. Is it a personal offering? Because everyone needs to be part of one, in which case you cannot do it on Shabbat because personal offerings do not override Shabbat. Or because it's done communally also, maybe it's a communal offering and it does push off Shabbat. So we know that there were two opinions. The Bnei Becerra, the, the children of Becerra, and Hillel, 
What was at the core of that debate? Why did one side with one and one side with the other? Let's continue our, our, our exploration. But first, I want to check in to make sure that, that all that we've set up until now is, is understandable. Yes? Does this, all, does this all make sense? Yes? Okay, I'm getting thumbs up. Right? It's a simple question. Is it personal or is it communal? There are elements of both. But which one is it? Right? It's a hybrid, but okay, but which is the dominant element? So let's explore. Let's continue the exploration to find some resolution here. And of course, to see why this was such a big deal in Hillel's life. So I'm going to continue by sharing my screen. And now let's look at text number six. Because what we're going to do is see the difference, examine the difference between Passover 1 and Passover 2. Or in other words, the first Passover that happened in Egypt, and the second Passover, the one that we're talking about in this week's Torah portion. Take a look at text 6. This is Passover 1, the original, OG Passover. What happened that very first Passover? The Torah says, the fo- I'm going to read this. The Torah says the following. Moses summoned all the elders of Israel. This is still in Egypt. And he said to them, draw forth or buy for yourselves sheep for your families and slaughter the Passover sacrifice. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop and immerse it in the blood that is in the basin. And you shall extend it to the lintel and to the two doorposts, the blood that is in the basin, right? Paint the doorposts red. And and you shall not go out, any man from the entrance of his house, until morning. Looking at these verses, put yourself back into that moment in time. The Jews are still enslaved in Egypt. This is going to be the last night of slavery and the first night of freedom. And God says, I want you to have the following at your meal. The last supper, sorry, the final meal before the exodus. This is what I want you to have. I want you to have some lamb. And the way you're going to do it is you're going to slaughter the sacrifice the afternoon. You're going to paint the doorpost with blood, and you're going to eat the Passover lamb that night, and no one should leave their house. So I'm going to ask you a simple question. Imagine you're there, and imagine you're doing this. Where are you bringing this offering? Where are you slaughtering this animal? Where? Where? Somebody unmute. Huh? House. Where are you eating it? In the house. In In other words, they were on lockdown. They were quarantined. They were not allowed to go out. I mean this with all seriousness. They were absolutely in quarantine. There was, we've all seen the movie, that green thing floating through the air, through, through the streets. Joking. The angel of death was around. They were not permitted to go outside. That very first Passover, their Paschal lamb was very much a private personal offering. It was a home offering. They brought it at home. They ate it at home. There was nothing communal about it. They weren't allowed to go to their neighbor. They weren't allowed to leave their house. It was absolutely a personal offering. The B'nai B'Seirah say, if you, yes, the Passover lamb, the way we have it in temple times has elements of both because you would join up with your neighbor and join up with a larger group. 
But the Bnei Becerra said, look, if you want to know the identity of the Paschal Lamb, is it personal or is it communal? All you need to do is look back at the original, the original iteration of it. Look back at the original time that this was performed. Was it personal or communal? It was not communal. There was no community. There was no people. I mean, there were, there were people. There wasn't a community. They didn't do it together. There wasn't a temple. There wasn't a single place of worship. They didn't group together. It was done families by their homes, in their homes. That was it. So the B'nai B'seir say, you want to know what a Paschal Lamb is? Go back to the source. Go back to Egypt. It's personal. And if it's personal, you cannot bring it on Shabbat. Do not bring it on Shabbat. That seems like an ironclad, a very strong argument. But Hillel came along. And Hillel said, my friends, my friends, you are missing the point. Why are you missing the point? You're missing the point because you need to look at what happened the next year. Don't just look what happened in the year 2448 in Egypt. Look what happened the next year. By the next year, the Jewish people had a mishkan, they had a tabernacle. They were told to bring it in the tabernacle. It was brought by families, but it was brought in a communal way. And so Hillel says that if you want to know the identity, if you want to know the DNA of the Paschal Lamb, you cannot just look at year one, you have to also look at year two. And year two tells us that it is indeed a communal offering. But I want to go much deeper in this understanding. Hill is not just saying we prefer year two versus year one, whereas B'nai Becerra is saying we prefer year one versus year two. It's not a question of which year do we like better. Are we two, four, four, are we 48s or 49s? Right? Do we like 2448 or 2449? That's not, it's not just numbers. It's a core debate about identity, human identity. And this gets back to how we started the class. You see, according to Hillel, Hillel's understanding is, is that the Passover sacrifice is a living and breathing dynamic that begins in one way year one and progresses and adds on new layers in year two. It's not year one versus year two. It's year one plus year two. To understand this, let's look at human beings. Human beings are individuals and yet are also part of groups, right? Each, each one of us, we have our individual identities who we are uniquely and individually. And then there are elements of who we are that relate to the larger group. We are part of a family. We are part of a community. We are part of other circles of interest. So there's who we are individually, and then there's who we are as part of a whole. And Hillel saw the Passover offering to be symbolic of the way we develop and must develop as human beings. We start off by enhancing, by getting in tune with 
by developing our individuality, our private lives, so to speak, our individuality, our personal lives. Year one of Passover, which is the birth of our people, year one, we focus on the Passover lamb as a private, personal service. It's about getting to know oneself in one's home, developing our unique talents and abilities and identity. But Hill says that the Passover lamb, the Passover sacrifice is not static, it's dynamic because there's a year two. There's a step two in human development where we don't suffice with personal development, but we realize that we are not islands unlike that song, I am a rock, I am an island, right? Who was that from? Simon and Garfunkel. Simon and Garfunkel, right? Good Jewish boys. Yeah, I am a rock, I am an island, and a rock, something never cries, and an island, and a rock feels no pain, and a, a rock feels no pain, and an, an island, island never cries. cries. Yes. So, yeah, individualism. Simon and Garfunkel were stuck in year one. Maybe they have a follow-up song that's year two. Yeah, but they, I am a rock, I am an island. Yes, that's how we begin our journey. We begin in families and we try to find our own identity. Who am I? Right? Don't tell me. Don't give me the collective. I want to know who I am. And so year one, beginning of human development, we assert our individualism. Who am I? But a healthy human being has the ability to grow beyond the who am I and to ask the question, who am I or what am I a part of? Not who am I only, but what bigger entity, what larger dynamic am I a part of? And a mature human being realizes that it's not an either or. And it's not that the communal or the collective takes away from my individuality, but that a strong piece of my individual identity is which group am I a part of? I'll say that again. The, the, the advanced, I don't know, advanced, the mature, when we mature and have a bigger perspective on self, we will realize that it's not a zero-sum game either Either it's me or it's the collective. No. That who am I? I am someone who values the collective individually. I as an individual recognize my place and the benefit of the collective. Does that make sense? If you think about it, this is, this is born in our experiences. What are people more passionate about? The fact that they are an accountant or the fact that they are a Steelers fan? Yeah? Their individual identity or the collective identity? What really gets a person going? Yeah? I've never seen someone do like cheers and chants on their way to work. You know, I mean, okay, I can't say never because, you know, who knows. But, yeah? So this is, there's, a, there's an individual power feeling part of a collective. You with me on this? There's a power. You go to a concert with, you could listen to music with earphones, individual. You go to a concert and there's magic there, right? What's the magic? It's part of being with a collective. 
But it's not that it's either me or the group. That's where societies have failed, right? That's where communism is, it's everybody. Well, whatever, <laughs> unless you're in charge, right? And, and capitalism is, it's, it's everyone on their own. And that's where it fails. Things fail in the extremes. And Judaism says, you be an individual who cares about the collect, not who cares, <laughs> an individual who cares about the collective, who identifies also individually with the collective, who values the collective. And that's what a healthy human being looks like. B'nai B'Seira said, you know what? It's all static year one. Passover sacrifice brought by individuals in their homes, quarantined, locked away, locked down, no interaction. It's a private offering. Don't bring it on Shabbat. And Hillel said, Hillel Hazakin, the original Hillel, Hillel said, no way. Passover is a dynamic. The Passover lamb is dynamic, not static. It wasn't just one year. There's a second year. Our Torah portion, Balotcha, is year two. The second iteration, which was brought communally, which is why the Passover sacrifice has both elements. Because a human being can't just be stuck as an individual, has to also be a collective. And thus, Hillel's most famous saying, you know what it is, Hillel's most famous saying is, if I am not for me, who will be for me? What does that promote? Guys, unmute yourselves because I'm asking questions. Yeah, if I am not for myself, who will be for me? What does that promote? Individualism. But if I am only for myself, who am I? What does that promote? The communal, but more than just the communal. If I'm only for myself, then who am I? What kind of individual doesn't realize the value of the community? And if the community element is missing, then the point is the individual can't be an individual. You understand that, 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 that nuance over there? Yeah? So let me pull it up so you can see it for yourselves. And by the way, when do we learn this? When do we learn this statement? Right after Passover, the first Shabbat after Passover. We start Pirkei Avot, Ethics of the Fathers. And Hillel would say, if I'm not for myself, who is for me? In other words, I got to look out for number one. Year one, individualism. However, he's not done yet because we're moving and evolving dynamics. And if I am only for myself, what am I? If I fail to see that I'm part of something larger, then my individual identity is compromised, is lacking. Not only am I missing out on the collective, but my individual identity is lacking if I'm not part of a greater whole. If I don't see myself as part of a greater whole. That means there's something missing within myself. And if not now, when? We'll speak about that in a moment. But now I want to share with you a deeper way of understanding this. I mean, it's similar to what I just said, but it's going to explain how he became 
It's going to express his, uh, his ascension to leadership. Stay on this journey with me. If I'm not for myself, who is for me? Hillel says, that's year one Passover. That's the personal offering. That's individual. But if I'm only for myself, what am I? If I'm only for myself, if I am only for myself, if I'm only personal, then Hillel says, if the, if the Passover lamb was only a personal offering and it wouldn't be brought on Shabbat, then what am I? I would never have been appointed to become leader. What am I means, what am I? I would have never become leader if not for this communal element. You with me on this double meaning? If I'm not for myself, what am I means? I need to have the communal. But it also means if I'm only for myself and there's no communal element, then what am I? I don't become Hillel. I'm not Hillel anymore. Hillel literally would not have been Hillel if not for teaching about the communal element. The communal teaching helped him personally. Are you with me on this? I hope that last point came through. And if not now, when? We'll explain soon. Let's see the Rebbe's insight in this text number nine. And here the Rebbe says what I just said, but, but certainly in, 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 with better words. If I'm not for myself, who is for me means that essentially the Passover sacrifice is a personal one. Every individual must bring his own offering, purchase with his own money, and be a part of his own group. But on the other hand, Hillel says, and if I am only for myself, what am I meaning? The sacrifice must have the properties of a communal sacrifice, right? Only for myself, that's not good either. It has to also have communal elements. And moreover, if it were only a personal offering, only for myself, it would not, this is an error, this is a typo, it would not, if it was a personal offering, it would not override the Sabbath. And Hill himself would have never become the Nasi. Thus, he says, what would I be? Ma'ani, what would I actually have been? Had this not, had it not been determined that as a communal sacrifice, what would I be? I would still be a woodchopper. Now we can ask, the Rebbe says, even if the Passover sacrifice is a communal affair, a communal sacrifice only overrides the Shabbat if it is one that cannot be brought any other day. Therefore, Hillel says, if not now, when? Meaning that the Passover sacrifice can only be brought on the 14th day of Nisan. So therefore, if not now, when? It had to be brought on the 14th. This is the journey of Hillel, and I'm going to explain why this made him the leader. The journey of Hillel is the Passover journey. The Passover lamb journey, year one, is personal. Year two is communal. Hillel says you need, to, you need to look out for yourself. You need to know who you are. But you also need to know that you're part of something greater than yourself. And that enhances self. And it was that knowledge of Hillel that enhanced him personally. That allowed him to become the leader that he was. That communal teaching elevated him personally to a position of communal leadership. And if not now, when? It's a communal offering is the Passover offering that needs to be brought on the 14th. If not now, when, when else are you going to bring it? It has to be brought on the 14th. Even though it's Shabbat, it pushes off Shabbat. I said before that Hillel came out of nowhere to become the leader. And it all happened because of this story. And the, the, and, and, and the curious mind might ask the question, what, just because he answered a question, they made him, they made him in charge? <laughs> one, one question and you make him in charge? Yeah, this question. This question. Because it wasn't just a question about animals, it was a question about leadership. The Bnei Becerra failed to realize that there's a merging of the personal and the communal. Hillel taught that a true leader has to cultivate and love and enhance individuals. 
and then has to raise them to realize the value of a community. And then furthermore to realize that when the community is valued, that enhances again the individual. And it's a beautiful, beautiful cycle that, 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 that gives to itself. It's a positive feedback cycle of individuals growing into communities and communities feeding individuals. Hillel understood that and the people said, this is who we need as a leader. Someone who values us individually, someone who values us collectively, someone who doesn't look at it as an either or. Either the individual is valued or the collective is valued. I mentioned before, and I'm going to end with this. Civilizations and societies have gotten it wrong for thousands of years because they've said either or, one or the other. Either we have to look out for everybody, socialism, communism, or we have to allow the individual to do their own thing and thrive alone, capitalism. Both systems exclusively are flawed. Why? Because the communal system doesn't care about the individual. And the individual system doesn't care about the communal. Judaism teaches a third model. A model in which individuals are strong. Individuals have self-determination. And those individuals also recognize the value of the other. The individuality of the other. And the value in connecting with the other. And how the other and connecting with the other enhances oneself in turn. And so Torah says... It's your land, it's your food, it's your farm. It's yours, capitalism. And then you need to choose to give it to someone that's in need. Tzedakah is a mitzvah, and it's the greatest mitzvah. In fact, in Talmud, in Talmud terminology, when it says mitzvah, it means tzedakah. The reason why tzedakah is the greatest mitzvah is because it expresses this truth. It's mine. And I see the value of benefiting the collective. And when I benefit the collective, it benefits me. And it's this beautiful feedback loop, this loop that continues, that binds and combines both the personal and the communal. And this is the Jewish model. I want to end with one final text. It's such a beautiful text. It's from, uh, from Jonathan Sachs. Of, uh, of blessed memory, he writes the following. I once had the opportunity to ask the Catholic writer Paul Johnson what had struck him most about Judaism during the long period he spent researching it for his masterly, his book, A History of the Jews. He replied in roughly these words, there, there have been in the course of history societies that emphasize the individual, like the secular West today, and there have been others that placed weight on the collective, communist Russia or China, for example. Judaism, he continued, Paul Johnson continued, was the most successful example he knew, he knew of that managed, to, that managed the delicate balance between both, giving equal weight to the individual and collective responsibility. Judaism was a religion of strong individuals and strong communities. This, he said, was very rare and difficult and constituted one of our greatest achievements. So Rabbi Sachs concludes, it was a wise and subtle observation. Without knowing it, he had an effect paraphrased Hillel's aphorism. If I'm not for myself, who will be 
individual responsibility. But if I am only for myself, what am I? Collective responsibility. And tonight we added one more wrinkle. When we also have the sense of collective responsibility and community that also enhances self. And so my friends, as we conclude tonight's class, may we know who we are and know our unique talents and gifts and know our unique, our, our unique place in the world. And we need to know who we are. Keep that red string tied around your toe. You are Yanko. You have to know who you are. But at the same time, you have to know who the other one is and that they are also an infinitely valuable individual and that there's great benefit in connecting with other individuals in the form of a community. And by doing so, that benefits not just everyone, but it comes back and enhances our own identity. As it did with Hillel, that this teaching enhanced his own identity, so may it be through us. May we succeed individually. May we play into the success of the collective. And may those efforts of enhancing the collective pay tremendous dividends for us and our personal lives. I thank you for joining me tonight for Torah Studies. I hope you gained and learned from tonight's class. And I look forward to seeing you soon. Have a wonderful night. I'll stay on. I'm making it sound like I'm about to shut this off. I'll stay on for questions or comments. But that concludes tonight's class. One word, Ari. Yes. Symbiosis. Symbiosis. Love it. I love it. You reminded me of another word. Synthesis. I don't know if that's a good word, but that's also a word. All right. Uh, I have a question. Yes. I, I heard okay. from the chat. Uh, Bnei, oh. You mentioned Bnei Psorah. Bnei Psorah? Yeah. Are they Beit Shammai? No. No. Bnei Becerra, they were... I don't know. I have to look them up, what their bio was. No, this is before, this is before um, Hillel and Shammai. Yeah. So Shammai came later? Shammai came later, yeah. Yeah. This was another, this was another group. Hold on, let me see. Um, oh, I see now in the chat, there's a few questions. Uh, why is the Amidah Shorin on Shabbat? But we have Musaf, Middle Amidah prayers are personal, so we don't give them on Shabbat. Yes. Yes, we do not do the personal prayers on Shabbat, correct. So we do, right, Linda's asking, why is it that meter short on Shabbat? We have Musaf, middle and meter prayers are personal, so we don't give them on Shabbat. Right, so we mentioned the communal, right, it's more of a communal prayer on Shabbat. That's the one that we do on Shabbat. But Rabbi, what about the morning prayers? Where, where, we, where we have the individual blessings. Yeah. Right, but the Amidah on Shabbat is not the personal prayer. It's not the 18 um, benedictions where we're asking for wisdom and for forgiveness and that whole thing. We're, it's more of a, we mentioned Shabbat, it's really about Shabbat and the gift of Shabbat we talk about. So it's more of the collective experience as opposed to the individual ask on Shabbat and the festivals. Um, Mark is asking, I'm just going through the questions here. Mark is asking, what about year two and year one? Oh, but about year two, year two and year one, why do we look at the meaning of a word or phrase when first used in Torah? Focus on the initial meaning. Oh, so Mark is asking, why are we looking at year two? Just stick with year one. Okay, that's how B'nai B'Sera saw it. I can't tell you, I don't know that I'm going to give you a logical, you know, like, I don't know if I have a good answer to your question. You know, why did Hill look at year two? 
But I think the composite is beautiful. I think, thank God he looked at year two because it's actually reflective of the human condition. You know, we, we think of ourselves, we work on ourselves, and then we realize at some point we need each other. And the fact that we have each other helps us individually. And I think it's a human truth. I think it's beautiful. Yeah. All right. What, what I was trying, trying to get across, and Chad, it's not easy to, was that when we look at the Torah and we see a word in the Torah, uh, we see how, what was its meaning when it was first used. And the same right. thing goes for phrases. What was, what was their meaning the first time? And that seems to be pretty sacrosanct. Uh, but here's a situation of what the meaning was uh, of the Paschal sacrifice. The first time, well, the first time was the first time, and the second time was the second time, and they kind of worked together. So it kind of blasts that whole method of studying. I, no, I understood that from, your, from, from the chat. I, I don't have a good answer for that. In other words, if your question is, why is this an exception to the rule where we usually go by the first time something's mentioned, I don't have a good answer. I mean, I could say maybe it's because there was a second time in Torah where the rules changed a little bit. And so that's an indication that maybe there's another model that we should be looking at. And instead of an either-or, Hillel layers them and says it's one plus one, right? It's year one plus year two, and that's going to tell us really a, a larger picture. I, but I, I, you're, I, I don't, I can't, I can't, you have a good question, I don't know that I can answer it, is my, that's, that's my real answer, is I, don't, I can't answer, I don't think I can answer that, that specific question. But that's, that's how he does it, and, and the, the payoff is a beautiful understanding about identity, and collective identity, and, uh, and how, that, how that helps us as well. I mean, I think, I think part of, you know, what I just, in language, what I just stumbled upon as I was responding to your question, which is, again, a very good question, is this notion that we're the benefit, we're the beneficiaries of communities, right? I mean, it's kind of like an investment, not that we're doing it because of that, but it's an investment in, in, in a structure and a system that, that will help us also individually. And, but it's, and it's also more than that. It's, it's that being part of a community is a strong piece of who we are. Right? Again, we identify in our collective groups sometimes more strongly than our individual vocations. And there's a reason for that, because something about the group touches a deep place within. So it's a mistake. Again, it's a mistake to think it's either or. Either we have to be like pro-individual or pro-community. It's really about honoring both and having both enhance each other. All right, but I already said that before, and now I'm repeating myself. Um, yes? I have a comment and a question. The, there was a uh, communal aspect of the first uh, Passover, which was the blood on the mantelpieces. So, uh, you know, that, that was a public... Uh, right. It was a forward-facing good, yeah. And then um, I just had a question about, did they actually uh, make a fire on Shabbat? To make the, oh, so question good question. About? Very good question. So... Um, was it existing fire? Yeah, no, it wasn't existing fire. But even existing fire, you can't burn something on Shabbat, but they, they, they would do it. But what's interesting is, and you just reminded me, I meant to say something before. When this happened on Shabbat, and they had a, so they would do something very interesting. There's another prohibition on Shabbat, which is carrying in a public domain. So listen to this. Everyone who went to the temple with their sacrifices and brought them on Shabbat, because we just learned tonight, Hillary, you do it on Shabbat, they would wait in the temple courtyard, inside the large courtyard, until after Shabbat to walk. Well, they wouldn't be walking their animals. No, it was already, okay. But to take the animal home to prepare it for that, for the, for that Seder that night. Are you with me on what I'm saying? Does that make sense what I'm saying? Yes? In other words, usually when... 
when 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 erev pesach falls out on a weekday so you in the afternoon you you bring the animal they do the thing you take the meat home and you uh, you prepare you roast it for that night but when it fell out on Shabbat, they, they would bring the offering in the temple, but you couldn't carry it home. You couldn't bring it home because that's not part of the offering. That's just getting it home. You want to get it home? You got to wait till after Shabbat, after three stars come out, after nightfall. So you know what, you know what happened? They started the seders very late into the night. Imagine you had to first walk home with your, with your, with your Paschal lamb after Shabbat. You have to get home. Then you have to start roasting it. Then you have to start making your Seder plate. I mean, it's a whole, it's a whole shindig. Today, we complain. I mean, I'll just say personally, it's like, oh, come on. You have to heat up the soup. That's going to take time. You know, after Shabbat, you can't preheat it for Shabbat, the holiday. Ay, that's, it's, but they had to bring it home and only then start all the preparations with the Paschal lamb. I guess it was quick. If they had a big fire, you just roast it. You got to cook on, on, on the holidays, I should mention. Anyway, all right, good. Good, good, good. All right, I'm going to sign off. It's great to see you all. A few quick announcements, very important announcements. One quick question, please. Yes. Okay, uh, with respect to capitalism, capital, and you mentioned that a few times during your, during your, yeah. uh, during this uh, tourist study session. Capitalism says the customer is always right. That's an extremely moral position, uh, giving great value to the individual. Uh, so, um, to say that capitalism is amoral, I, 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 I suggest that that might not be true. I agree with you. I agree with you. What I think that, what I, so to clarify, what I think is that there are values to, the, to, a, to systems that focus, sorry, there are benefits to systems that focus on individuals and the collective. There are detriments when either are taken to the extreme and Judaism guides us to, to pull out the best of both and not to pit one against the other. So in conclusion, I just want to mention this. We have a new course coming up, or we have a, 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 yeah, a course coming up called Curious Tales of the Talmud. It's starting in a few weeks, starting in a few Tuesdays, Tuesday, June 15th, so join us for that. Um, it's going to be amazing. Number one, it's about the most bizarre, perplexing stories of the Talmud and their deeper mystical meaning and the life lessons we can derive from it. So you don't want to miss this, Curious Tales of the Talmud. That's number one. Number two, um, we are doing a, what are we doing? We are doing a film, uh, we have a three-week film festival, Jewish film festival going on at Chabad, Sunday evenings, 8 p.m., great food, great films, massive screens, it's a lot of fun. Join us this week. This Sunday night, we have an Israeli film called The Women's Balcony. It's about, and a, it's a, it's a, it's a comedy, drama, uh, Israeli film about a shul, a synagogue that, um, where the, the, the synagogue has an accident and, um, and, and there's a rift in the community um, which plays out in interesting ways. It's a, it's a fascinating story. It's, it's drama. It's not a, it's not a real story. It's a, it's a movie, but it's, uh, it's got some great lessons to it. So join us for that fun Israeli comedy drama, The Women's Balcony. We also have coming up tomorrow night, I'm going out of order, I know this, but work with me. Tomorrow night we have the last Rosh Chodesh Society class for women tomorrow night at 8 p.m. So join us for that. Um, what else is upcoming? We have so many things. Gimel Tamos, the anniversary of the passing of the Rebbe is coming up. We're having an in-person program. Sunday, June 13th. Save, please save the date, Sunday, June 13th.
Um, the guest speaker, we're going to have a reception, 6.30 p.m. reception, 7 o'clock program with videos. Uh, videos of the Rebbe, this is honoring the life and legacy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe on his yard site, 27th yard site. Um, guest speaker will be my brother-in-law, Leah's brother, older brother from Los Angeles, Rabbi Moshe, Rabbi Moshe Kesselman. He will be speaking. He's a tremendous speaker. Some of you heard him speak at Mendel's Bar Mitzvah uh, about a year and a half ago. He will be in town in Atlanta, live and in person speaking. So join us for that. It's not yet up on the website, website, but it's coming up. We also have coming up, again, not on the website. This is June 20th. I'm just giving you some information. Just keep these things in your head. When you see the emails, jump on it. Escape from Cairo. A Muslim uh, individual growing up in Cairo who grew up to hate Jews, was taught to hate Jews, learns Hebrew and discovers a whole new reality. He's now an, a human rights advocate and an advocate for Israel. June 20th, join us for an unbelievable event again on Zoom. What else? There's another major thing that's coming up, which I am forgetting. Oh, I <laughs> just secured this tonight. This is coming up in July. Again, just keep, your, keep the, the, the radar out for this stuff. This event is going to be called... Um, hold on. It's called, stay with me, the archaeological claim to Jerusalem. Do you remember last year we had the Jewish uh, Indiana Jones? He is back. We did Secrets of the Temple Mount. This time it's the archaeological claim to Jerusalem. Some scholars claim that there's no sign of Jewish life in Israel, or they challenge that archaeological Evidence, the most incredible and the latest findings in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem. Join us. The date is going to be July, one second, July 13th, Tuesday night, 8 p.m. Save the date for that. All right, that's it. That's all the announcements for right now. There's way more coming up. Stay tuned for a lot of exciting summer programming here at InTown Jewish Academy. Thank you all. Um, Ray, thank you for sponsoring tonight's class, and indeed, may, may uh, the anniversary be a blessing for you and for the whole mishpacha, and may we all polish ourselves and polish our communities. Thank you, and Laila Tov. See you soon. Thank you. Pleasure.